0: Good morning, church. Would you please turn again into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. This morning we'll look at the next section of text. As we sang in that song just a few moments ago, our highest good and our unending need to come again to the Word of God and be nourished and filled. In the Legacy Standard Bible, the... (coughs) Next pericope begins with verse 21, that's where we'll begin today, and then we'll go all the way through verse 39, and that will be the portion of text we look at this morning. So if you'll read along with me this morning from 21 to 39 in Luke chapter 2, remembering that as I read, these are the words of the Lord. And when eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him, His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple... When the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord... They returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time as we do each week. Father, in this morning, in the text you've given us, we see a picture of. Two individuals that love you deeply and were waiting a very long time to see you. And Lord, may it be said of us at the end of our days that we at Christ the King would be a people that love you dearly and are waiting patiently and expectantly for your return. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to this text as the Holy Spirit worked through Simeon To guide and direct him to Jesus, would you work through the Holy Spirit now to guide and direct our attention to Jesus Christ that we might become more like him? It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. (coughs) Donald Trump, (laughs) Thomas Stonewall Jackson, Douglas Wilson, and Jesus Christ. It's an unusual group of names, I know. But they do have something in common. Each of them elicits unavoidable polarity. Just last week I was asked, if Donald Trump turns out to be the candidate for the Republican Party, Pastor Chris, will you vote for him? I'm sure you're all eager to hear how I answered that question. Regardless of which way I would answer that question, I would either be a hero to some and a complete villain to others. I either care with all my heart about the survival of this republic of ours, or I'm an evil, unthinking fascist who collects Nazi military trading cards what I am not in almost any case, regardless of what you may think of former President Donald Trump, what I would not be in almost any case, regardless of my answer, is a reasonable individual. If I told you that I have the utmost respect for and think fondly of the memory of Confederate General Jackson, I am either a Chad King historian or... Clearly, I am a white supremacist. I don't often quote Doug Wilson, but several years ago, I was at a rehearsal dinner where I just passively made mention of something that he had said that helped me, and the couple that I was speaking with immediately turned and started speaking to a different dinner guest. There are some names for which the tolerance crowd is not entirely tolerant. Now, Before completing his nativity preface here, Luke brings in two additional cast members to the story, Simeon and Anna. They're only with us for a few short verses, and we aren't even told that much about them. In fact, Matthew excludes them from his birth narrative entirely. But Luke includes them. He takes time to mention them. These two aged saints who have both lived all of their lives in what seems to be unequal devotion to Yahweh, their God. And they add their witness to having seen the Messiah, another report to encourage Theophilus in his faith crisis. Now, we just read a brief summary in the text this morning of their love and devotion to God. And we, church, are faced when we come into contact with people like this, with a decision. We are faced with Simeon and Anna, and we come to a crossroads, a confrontation, a kind of personal impasse, if you will. They loved and lived for their God in such a way that we have to decide. We have to decide whether or not they're either nuts, they're crazy, they have no idea how to spend their lives with wisdom, Or this Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah of God. The whole world right now is caught up in a globalist fervor. Let's all just get along. We're all one big human family. Let's all come together and have peace and love. And behind the scenes, they've got this giant concrete machine that's pouring the the foundation for their Secular universe project. That's what they want to do. They want to bring the whole world together underneath no king but me, no king but you, no king but really who's at the top. It's Christians like Simeon and Anna throughout history who show up on the scene and they take a jackhammer and break up all that nonsense. They're citizens of heaven who have figured out how to marry the worlds of private devotion and public faithfulness to Jesus, so that wherever they go, their very presence becomes the hour of decision for those they come into contact with. This morning, I want to look at how Simeon and Anna loved the Lord Jesus in order that we may love him in the same way and make the world around us face the question, is Christ king or someone else? Well, I want to look at the text this morning, as I mentioned earlier, beginning with verse 21, but let me briefly say that this text is bookended by the circumcision of Jesus in verse 21. It's kind of a transitional verse. I'll talk about that in just a minute. And then there's a return trip to Nazareth in verse 39. So you you need to remember at this point that Joseph and Mary are still likely in Jerusalem hanging out probably with Joseph's family shortly after Mary gives birth, the appointed time in the law for Jesus' naming arrives. This is the point at which he would be circumcised. And, And the text says in verse 21, when eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him according to the law, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now it's... It's nothing for me to say that this is a very significant event in the life of the Lord Jesus. The moment when the boy child would officially officially be recognized as belonging to the old covenant family of God. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about the significance of this moment. The significance of the circumcision rite in Israel. But just notice how little time Luke spends on it. It's so interesting. In order for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, this event had to take place. But Luke spends just one verse. No references to symbolism or typology. No mention of Abraham or Moses. There's not even a mention of the law here. It's not even that he was circumcised according to the law. No mention. Just Joseph and Mary obeying the angel's message in accordance with the word of God. As I mentioned earlier, verse 21 is primarily transitional. The massive significance of circumcision, which is essential, and I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute, seems to be overshadowed by that same theme that we've seen so far through Luke. Faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. You've got faithful Joseph, faithful Mary. What's the next thing that we're to do? We take him on the eighth day, have him circumcised, and we name him. We name him in accordance with the name given us by the angel, according to the word of God. As we've seen, this is going to be a theme that comes up again and again throughout our study. Let me ask you at this point in the sermon this morning, are you known for a steady, reliable faith in God, which is followed by simple obedience? Faith that is childlike and unchallenging, which may seem like a contradiction to some of you here, and we can talk about parenting issues later. We were taught this as children. We were taught to say things like, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Now, I know that there's a nostalgic corniness in that phrase for some of you, but when you think about that saying, there's something very simple but very true, very beautiful in that. Just take God at His word, church. Take God at His word, believe Him, and obey Him. He is pressing you, perhaps, to give up that everyday beer that you've just got to have. Quit making excuses to go to the fridge at the end of the day and get one anyway. You feel compelled to go downtown once a week and walk the streets looking for someone to share the gospel with. Then get in your car and go. What are you waiting for? You've been told now by three different covenant members at this church that your tone with your child is harsh. So delete your mental definition of anger and take your fellow covenant members' advice to realign to the biblical standard of love and nurture of children. Simple faith and simple obedience. That's what God is asking us for without challenge, excuse, or delay. Now what happens next in verse 22 took place About 32 days later, about 32 days after the circumcision event, we read, And when the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. There's a lot going on here, but I want to look at just three things with you this morning. The first is that according to the purification requirements in Leviticus, Mary was due at the temple for her ritual cleansing after the birth of a child 40 days later. Now, this was 40 days because it was a male child. If it was a female child, it would have been 80 days later. At this point, she would have been declared in the court of the women area. That was as far up as Mary could go towards the temple. The priest would have come down, and he would have declared her ceremonially clean, and Consequently, at this point, she and Joseph uh, could resume their marital uh, intimacy practices, which at this point they haven't had a chance to do yet because they've been waiting on the birth of Jesus. So Joseph could finally go into Mary after this declaration of cleansing. But there's something interesting here. Notice that the text says, And when the days of their cleansing were fulfilled, verse 22, Joseph also likely had to undergo a ritual cleansing. Now, why is that the case? Well, it's likely that he came into contact with some body fluids. As the Labor of Love song by Andrew Peterson, I think rightly has it, there were no midwives to be found in the streets of David's town in the middle of the night. So, in other words, Joseph was probably on delivery duty, which would have made him unclean as well as Mary. So they both had to go in and be cleansed. The second thing that I want you to notice is that the law required an offering for purification. Skip down to verse 24 with me. It says that they had to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, you know that they could not just walk into the temple, call the priest down from the priest's court area and say, okay, it's been 40 days, we've got this baby, we need to be declared clean. There was something additionally required in the law for cleansing, for this purification rite. Always in the Old Testament when we see purification, we see it connected to sacrifice. And that's exactly what you see. They had to make a sacrifice, for their purification. But Leviticus 12, which is the text that's being referred to here with the two turtle doves and two pigeons, actually commands principally a lamb and a dove or a pigeon. But Luke tells us that Joseph doesn't give the lamb. He offers an alternate sacrifice. This would have been the sacrifice for a poor man. That would have been two turtle doves or two pigeons, and that's Leviticus 12, verse 8. It doesn't mean that Joseph was broke, but we do get just a brief window into their financial situation. They weren't necessarily well off enough to go by and buy the full lamb and present that as the sacrifice. Finally, and this is the one that I think is most profound in this portion of the text, we see that Jesus was offered or dedicated to Yahweh. Go back up to verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What's interesting about this verse is that a boy was presented to the Lord for dedication only if he was of the tribe of Levi. And that's Numbers 18, verse 1. The rest of Israel's sons were to be redeemed with a five-shekel ransom, and that's from Numbers 18, verse 15. But Luke makes no mention of the ransom. It's almost as if this unusual dedication was done in lieu of the ransom. You remember when Hannah presented Samuel at the temple. She dedicated him or offered him to the Lord. It's, It's almost as if Mary... Um, to use Hannah's words, lent Jesus to the Lord. She's bringing him up and saying, we can't pay this price, so I'm offering my son to the Lord. Additionally, we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus was, in fact, a priest. Hebrews tells us he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that figure who was both a king and a priest, and yet, in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, that undying priest, that never-ending priest, Jesus follows in his stead. So Jesus was both given to God as a servant and also offered to God as a priest. And you can sense the filling up of all the types and shadows of Christ, even in something as simple as a purification. rite. Now this material may seem dull when you initially read through it, But I probably don't have to say that it matters tremendously what we read in front of us here. After Tammy was wheeled quickly away down to emergency heart surgery in 2017, I turned to see a nurse with a clipboard in her hand. She looked at me and said, Now comes the hard part. It was the consent form that I had to sign. I don't have to tell you that this was the last thing on my mind I wanted to do. It was a good bit of paperwork, and and I had tears streaming down my face as I tried to make the words out. But, But I did know this. What I sign here right now, it matters tremendously. Because I've got to hand my wife, I've got to hand her life over to the care of another. I want to know that this person's going to take care of my wife. I want to know that this person's going to do the best job that they absolutely can. And all of these details for Theophilus, as he reads through this, all of these details matter to him. Did he fulfill all the types and shadows? Is this Jesus, the Messiah that Isaiah talked about when he talked about a suffering servant? Is he the priest to come who would... Fulfill all righteousness and be able to present a sacrifice for me that I would never need another sacrifice for. In spite of their poverty, and also you can imagine the difficulty of being away from their home in Nazareth and the inconveniences that that brought, Mary and Joseph went through these rituals of obedience with faithfulness. Each event that took place was required to use Matthew's words, for our Lord to fulfill all righteousness. Consider consider this passage that I took from a a commentary by J.C. Ryle. I think it's worth reading in full. This is just thinking about the circumcision, right? Here's the words of Bishop Ryle. Let it suffice to us that we remember our Lord's circumcision was a public testimony to Israel, that according to the flesh, He was a Jew made of a Jewish woman, made under the law, Galatians 4.4. Without it, He would not have fulfilled the law's requirements. Without it, He could not have been recognized as a son of David and the seed of Abraham. Let us remember furthermore that circumcision was absolutely necessary before our Lord could be heard as a teacher in Israel. You ever thought about that? Without it, without circumcision, Jesus would have had no place in the Jewish assembly and no right to any Jewish ordinance. Without it, he would have been regarded by all Jews as nothing better than an uncircumcised Gentile and an apostate from the faith of his fathers. So look at it this way Joseph and Mary's obedience to God was critical, not just for their own righteousness before God, but it had a, a tremendous impact. On the life of their son, who at this point doesn't even have voluntary control over his arms and legs. You think about how important. Now, a moment ago, I talked about the simple faith and love for God, which flows into obedience. And it matters even if you're in a home with just a newborn. There are parents here at Christ the King who feel like they're way behind in parenting. There're dads who feel like they have no control in their home. There're moms who are desperate for a change in the behavior of their son or daughter. You read about Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, and you throw up your hands and you want to throw in the towel. And you just give up before you even start. I can't get there. It's there's I don't know what am I supposed to do? How do I make this kind of progress? The bar is too high. The goal is unattainable. This past week, Michael Foster said on Twitter, activity drives results, not goals. He doesn't mean busyness activity. That's not what he's talking about. He's not just saying get busy and do things. He means faith-filled obedience to God. That's what drives results. I want to see my child learn to control his anger. Do you set that example for him or her? I wish my kids would love each other, even when their siblings are mean to them. Which direction does your expression go when your kids cross you? Does the temperature of your home go up or down when the kids are at each other's throats from you? Do do you love the children Even when they don't love each other or when they turn and they show meanness or hatred towards a parent. Do you love them anyway? I want my kids to grow up loving and following Jesus. When is the last time that your children caught you on your knees pleading to God that they would grow up following and loving Jesus? I know, I know, Jesus was perfect. We look at this example, he had parents that set a good example for him. But Jesus was perfect, so imagine, though, the impact of a faithful father and a faithful mother taking the next obedience in line and saying, yes, Lord, and doing it. It's exactly what we see from Mary and Joseph here. And by the way, if that's not your childhood story, if you didn't grow up with that example around you, it can be for your children. It can be today. It can begin today. It doesn't matter how many times you've failed up to this point. Tell God and tell your spouse and tell all of your children together that you are done with your defeatist attitude towards parenting and towards the family and that you're going to obey God in this particular area. I get mad with you children too frequently. I'm done with that. I'm repenting. And I'm going to work on this particular area. Or I don't lead family worship in the home. And I know it's wrong. I know I need to be pointing you all to the Bible, pointing you to the Lord, teaching you how to do devotions. I'm going to be obedient in this area. And then ask your children and your spouse, your husband, your wife, to be prepared to forgive you when you fail again. Because you likely will. And then get up and repent and do the obedience again. And fight again. We serve a God who has promised us that all of the years of our lives that the locusts have eaten up of our sin and our suffering and our sadness and our bad attitudes and our bitterness towards our spouse or our kids or our extended family, we serve a God who said He can restore to us all the years those locusts ate up. So what is the one thing that you need to begin doing in your home right now to obey God? I want to encourage you, church, go do it, because your children are watching, even the little ones. Now let's take a look at the the portion of the scripture this morning where we see these two witnesses that Luke introduces to us, and I want to take this passage out of order a little bit. I want to look first at how Luke describes Simeon and Anna, what kind of people are they, and then we'll look at what they said. Then we'll look at the prophecies or the words that, that are quoted here in the text this morning. In the middle of this rite of cleansing, so you can imagine this is in the court of the women. This is as far up as Mary could go. Joseph's with Mary. They have the baby with them. Jesus wasn't actually required to be at Mary's cleansing, but because of their removal from the location, Nazareth, where they're at, he's, he's with them at this point. They also need to do this dedication to the Lord and offer him to the Lord. So Jesus is there with Mary and Joseph in the court of the women, right in the middle of the rite of cleansing. God sends a man named Simeon who comes up and starts speaking and takes Jesus in his arms. Simeon's name means God has heard, and he's been waiting for this moment all of his life. He's been looking for the sign of the Messiah all of his life, which is... Interesting because in English, the name Simeon is assonant with the Greek word Simeon, which means a sign. And again, Luke doesn't tell us a lot about him. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know anything about his family or his history Uh, We don't know if he was some kind of priest. There is a speculation that he was a priest and that's why he was in the temple all the time. And the Bible doesn't tell us that. It tells us the Spirit led him to the temple right at this moment, right at this hour. I think it was likely that he probably wasn't a priest. But either way, Luke doesn't give us those details. He does tell us, however, that Simeon was no average follower of Jesus. He was no average Yahweh worshiper. Verse 25, he was righteous. He was devout. He was waiting for Israel's comforter. The rabbis in those days had a, a knack for referring to the Messiah as the Menahem, which means comforter. We're going to sing a portion of Isaiah chapter 40 at Psalmsing later today, and that begins Comfort, comfort my people, comfort my people. Simeon's love for God was unquestionable. He was he was also a man who was uniquely filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27, and he came into the spirit into the temple. Now, the locals may have thought this guy was a little off. A bit of a quack a religious fanatic, an extremist, a few fries short of a Happy Meal. But because of the Word of God and because of Luke's insight into this moment, we get to see the man's heart. We get to see who he was. We don't know his family. We don't know his background. But we get to see his heart. We get, to, we get a picture, an inspired, inerrant picture of the kind of devotion to Yahweh that he had. And because of that description, you can't not take him seriously. Now let your eyes drift down to verse 36 and 37. Look at the description of Anna. She has similar credentials to Simeon. We do get a little bit of her background. She was the daughter of Fenuel of the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of those... 10 lost tribes of Israel. We don't know what happened to them because the Assyrians carted them off and then they intermarried with a bunch of different people and the lines were polluted. But here we have a descendant of Asher showing up on the scene, a woman who was married for seven years and then widowed at age 84. The Bible says that she never left the temple. Family worship the other night, the kids were just blown away by that. What does that mean she never left the temple? Didn't she have to eat? Is there a bathroom in the temple? Like, uh, what do you mean she never left the temple? Had a bunch of great questions. She did probably have a tent set up in the Court of Women somewhere, which again is, is, is as far as a woman could go towards the temple. And let's just say that she got married when she was age 18. She would have been nearly 60 years camping in the Court of the Women in the temple, fasting, praying, worshiping God. A righteous woman's zeal for the Lord puts her among the greatest women in the Bible. She's only here for a brief appearance. And yet her character just shines off the page. And look, Southern Baptist Convention, she didn't even have a preaching platform either. In this brief moment, with the appearance of two random individuals, and, and then a brief glimpse into their hearts, you're left with precious few options. They're either both lunatics, or Jesus has in fact come on the scene. But one thing you can't do, you can't ignore them. You can't read through those descriptions and just say, well, that's interesting, move on to the next page. You can't meet people like this and remain neutral. Then you're the insane one. Some of you are aware that over the last few months, there's been a big Christian nationalism kerfuffle going on over Twitter. After the 2020 shamdemic, Christians everywhere began rethinking their political theology And by the way, God has something to say about the way that even a secular society is run. But how do we get there? That's where the conversation is right now. How do we get to that place? Some might even suggest, should we try and get to that place? I would suggest that in our reaction to this ecclesiastical isolationism and pietism over the last 50 years... We not swing the pendulum so far the other way to outward obedience to Christ, to the pursuit of the Christian nation, to the pursuit of Christendom, and we forsake the well-trodden path of personal devotion to and pursuit of Jesus. How do you mean, Chris? Let me ask the question this way. Where do Simeon's and Anna's come from? They don't come from jettisoning jettisoning, abiding in Christ so they can get on Twitter and argue about the implementation of the law of God. They don't come from men and women who faithfully stand outside abortion mills or frequent county commission meetings but wouldn't give up 30 minutes of sleep in the morning to rise early and seek the Lord. If there is no inward dedication to Jesus, there can be no outward transformation. Let me say that again. If there is no inward dedication to Jesus, there can be no outward transformation. Imagine if the churches of Anderson County were filled with Simeon's and Anna's. Each member in regular, consistent adoration of Jesus. Jesus. Seeking Him daily, making them into the kind of people that are an inescapable simeon or sign of Jesus' kingship. Back when I was growing up, they were called Jesus freaks. But true Jesus freaks are those who are committed to gospel obedience that actually works its way out your fingertips into every area of life especially beyond the church doors on Sunday morning. These are the kinds of people that ignore the slanderous accusations of legalist and behaviorist because they care only for the favor of God which they're courting. And here's the thing, church. The lost world can't overlook people like this. They can't bury their heads in the sand to bloodbought citizens this devout. They can't avoid the men and women of God who never let the worship of Jesus in their hearts go out. Night and day, they never leave the presence of the Lord, who come out glowing with the power of the Spirit of God on them. Church, you were made to live off of Christ. You may never preach to a thousand people or even see with your own eyes the conversion of a single person. But your faith and obedience to Jesus can bring the world to the point of decision. You may have spent your younger years without any discipleship, stunted by pastors like Matt Chandler who told you when you read passages like this, you're not David, you're not Simeon, you're not Anna. Quit trying to imitate Bible characters, only imitate Christ. Never mind that there is a whole chapter of Hebrews devoted to Bible characters and their virtuous faith, which we're called to imitate. Never mind that this great cloud of witnesses was meant to encourage us in the same kind of faith, Hebrews 12.1. Never mind that just a few verses later, you were explicitly commanded to imitate the faith of your godly leaders. Never mind that the writer of Hebrews, Paul, told his Corinthian church, "...Imitate me as I imitate Christ." Today can be the day you start over and begin through even the smallest acts of obedience living for Jesus. It won't happen overnight. Simeon's and Anna's are clearly built over a lifetime. But the spirit of laziness has a hold of some people here and they just won't do anything to try. I don't know how to worship Jesus. I don't know how to seek Him. Then find somebody who does and follow their example. Chase Jesus while chasing people who are. Look to them as they're looking to Christ and imitate their example. Foster your love for Christ even this way, even with stunted growth. Don't pretend like engaging in the Christian nationalism debate or listening to the latest church controversy is going to suffice for growing your family into the image of Jesus. It won't. Today is the day to repent And pursue regular obediences to Christ. Regular pursuit of Christ. Through the ancient paths of Bible study and prayer. I was having a conversation with a brother this last week. And I said, look, there are a lot of things that our church likes to talk about. A lot of theological ideas. There are a lot of things in cultural engagement. There are a lot of uh, theological studies that people are doing deep dives into right now. And healthy debate in these areas is good. But if you're not regularly seeking Christ, we don't need to have a conversation about the rest of that stuff. Put it to the side. If you're not doing those two things, Bible study and prayer, how do you expect to create a Christian nation anyway? Where's it going to come from? It's not going to come from you. Let's look briefly at the end here at what Simeon and Anna said. In verse 28, we hear that Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. This is now the third hymn in this nativity narrative of Luke's. It's known in Latin as the nunc dimittis, if I pronounced that right. The song contains a strong emphasis on God keeping His promises. You'll notice the phrase in verse 29, according to your word, and also the revelation of God's salvation in Christ. And this latter point is the more emphasized of the two. Verse 29, Simeon says he can finally die in peace because he has seen the salvation of Yahweh and that salvation isn't an action event on God's part it's not an assembly of the angel armies fighting on Israel's behalf it is God himself wrapped in human flesh to undo the failure of Adam and set the world back on the course towards glorification for all the people and that includes you too lost person Consider Simeon's predicament for just a moment, you who are estranged from Christ. He's an old man. He doesn't have time to wait around until Jesus grows up. He'll never hear about the miracles of Jesus. He'll never witness the feeding of the 5,000. He'll never hear about Jesus walking on the water or raising Lazarus from the dead. He won't be around for the cross, burial, and resurrection. But he can depart in peace now because he looked at Jesus. Lost person, what are you waiting for? God has done the saving work. It's finished. All that remains for you is to drop your black-hearted pride and look to Christ. Christ. Look to Jesus as the answer for your sin debt. I said earlier that there is no place of neutrality. You can't come here week after week and play pretend Christianity. If Jesus is your Lord, it will show its way in good fruit. But if He is not, you better believe that the Father won't tolerate the game of charades for long. Simeon goes on to make that exact point in the next few verses. Joseph and Mary watched this man... Hold their child with gaping mouths. He goes on to say, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And the sword will pierce through your, that is Mary's, own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Falling and rising. Not the stabilizing of Israel. Not the maintenance of Israel. Not the status quo of Israel. Because of Jesus, people will either be built up, they will grow up in every way into Him who is the head. To Him who has, more will be given. It's either that path or you fall. Many will face plant, many will hit the ground. Like tripping on a rock, they will be broken to pieces. And even Mary is told that she's going to have to wrestle with this exact truth. Her son will end up being a sign that is opposed by many. Through that sign, the thoughts of many individuals privately get exposed. What happens? Jesus is the fork in the road. Everybody has to choose. Which way do you go with Jesus? Mary's going to see it too. And it's going to pierce her like a sword going right through her heart. Of course, you know he's referring to the passion of Jesus, the Via Dolorosa, the cross event. How much does Mary know at this point? We've talked about this in weeks past. She gave birth to the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah will he be? She's heard all of her life that it'll be some kind of political leader to take over the Romans and push them out so the Jews can have authority in their own land again. But when she sees him on a Roman cross, then what does she think? How does she process all of that? It'll be like a sword piercing her soul. And then when she sees the resurrected Christ... The lights come on. That's the Savior that he is. That's the Savior that he is. It's not merely political in nature. He's making new men. He's taking dead men and he's bringing them to life again. That's what all the miracles meant. That's what all of the teachings were about. It was all pointing to this one thing. He's going to recreate the world again. He's going to make everything new again. I get it. Today is the day, lost person. If the sword of the Spirit is piercing your heart and you feel convicted that you are estranged from God because of your sin, give one glance, just one glance, to Jesus. And you will be transformed into that new race of men. Let your eyes drop down to verse 38. At that very moment, so this is while Simeon saying all of these things. At the same moment, Anna comes up and she begins to give thanks to God and continued after she thanked God to speak of what had happened in the encounter she had had with Jesus with all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is kind of like Miriam after the song of Moses. Moses gives his song and then Miriam comes in with the descant. And Anna takes her message of Jesus out into the public square where she went on speaking and evangelizing in the name of Jesus. This much is clear. It is in the person of Jesus Christ, in you and me, that the world has to reckon with. God intends for the world to have to face Christ in us and make a decision. We should live in such a way that... Our lives even beg the question, Is Jesus your savior and also your master? Interesting word choice for Luke here in verse 29. He doesn't call God Lord. He calls him despotes," which is where we get the word for despot. It's a really strong owner, ownership term. that's why he calls himself a slave. Jesus ought to be in each of us, church, a rock of assurance that the lost either see and reach out for help or they keep tripping over us in their pursuit of self-actualization. I mentioned Twitter a moment ago. And the Reformed Christian community right now and the conversation that's going on there over the last several months, which kind of looks like a family reunion between the Hatfields and the McCoys. We're not getting along very well. At the moment, all men will know that you're my disciples because you have love for one another. Christian nationalists die. (laughs) It goes without saying that Twitter probably isn't the best place for us to have these theological debates with one another. Suggestion. Another problem is this. Christians of the Gen X, Millennial, and Zoomer generations have ridden on the backs of a dying Christendom most of our lives. God has been gracious to wake most of us up to this. 2020 was a catalyst. But instead of looking to Jesus for answers, it seems like we're dividing into two camps right now. Two ideas of how we're going to move forward. And I'll call these the feelers and the forms. Feelers and the forms. The feeler group... Wants to keep on riding that Pietism train. If these Christian nationalists would just shut up online and get back in their closet and get back with Jesus, everything would get better. The world's burning anyway. Jesus is coming soon. The foreign group wants to see some obedience. They're the doers, the getter-dunners of the church. They can't understand why those feelers won't let Jesus come out their fingertips. So they study the law. They have it at the ready. They're apologetic for why the Torah doesn't condone slavery and why we'd be better off with capital punishment for adultery. But so often they forsake the personal pursuit of God. I'm not going to stand up here and argue this morning for a third way. What I'd like to present to you is... The only way. The only way you get Simeon's and Anna's is by a vital connection to Christ. John 15. And if that connection is real, it will inevitably come out in your life. You want Christendom 2.0? It begins in the temple of the heart. Tended regularly, it can't help become visible to the world. The cloud of God not only filled the temple in Solomon's day, but it covered the exterior of the well. The priests couldn't even do their ministry because the cloud was so thick all around the temple. Here's three things I want you to consider in response today. If you've been addressed by God through His Word or the prompting of the Spirit or other covenant members at this church about a particular sin or a neglect of a duty, at home, or at work, or even here, and you keep asking yourself why you're so far behind, begin by repenting to God and your family and other members here that you've been playing this game in front of their eyes. Start stacking little obediences on top of each other and make progress in the Christian life. It's going to take years, but you can start today and God can show you progress in the Christian life that you could not have dreamed of. And then the rest of us will have to face decision as we see God transforming your life. And we'll have to come to grips with our walk with Christ. And we'll want to be further conformed to His image. And it compounds and builds over and over again until we all appear in the fullness of Christ. If you spend all of your devotional time studying secondary and tertiary issues of theology and practice, if you claim that reading those books and studying this reformer is the same as your pursuit of Christ, if you spend hours each week following the Twitter debacle because you don't want to miss out on the latest volley from your side of the Christian nationalism debate, you should stop. Just stop. Stop. You should forsake these things in order to begin regularly pursuing Christ and establish a steady intake of the word and routines in prayer. And you should probably self suspend yourself on Twitter. Jim Elliott once said Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to the point of decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road, make me a fork. That men must turn one way or the other, facing Christ in me. When I read Luke 2, and I read about Simeon, and I read about Anna, I can't just dismiss their words because of who they are, because of all the devotion to Christ. You can't ignore it. It's right there in front of you. And beloved, if change is coming to Anderson County, it's not coming through a petition from the Republicans to remove pornographic books in the library. It's not. It's not. It's not going to come through the next red wave election that people are waiting for. It's not even going to come through a successful debate with your atheist friend on the street. Those things are all part of our faith working itself out in real time and they are to some extent necessary. We ought to be Christians in the world. We ought to be pushing the envelope of Christ into every area of life. That's part of our mission statement as this church. But if we never pursue Christ, if we forsake consistent pursuit of Jesus, we gain nothing. It's the Simeons and Annas of church history who lived lives for Jesus in such a way that a response was demanded. And it is the will of our Lord that we also be conformed likewise into His image that the world would see Christ in us as well as they did them and they would be forced to the point of decision. May it be so for the glory of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how Luke has written just the first few chapters of his gospel. That we are faced with so many fulfillments of promises so many evidences of your faithfulness, even in the life of the Lord Jesus, needing to fulfill all righteousness, and yet in His helpless humanity, His mother and father were obedient to you and did what was required. Lord, You are sovereign over all things, and and even now You are sovereign over the trials that we face in our homes, and in our marriages, and in our jobs. And Lord, we long to be the kind of people that have a tangible fervor for the, for the Lord. And so, Father, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, working through your word, you would help each of us to grasp this thing or that thing, that simple act of faith, believing I need to do this and then put it into action and do it. And that through our faithful pursuit of Christ, and our simple obediences, in our lifetimes, you will see us conformed into this kind of people because it honors your son and that's our highest desire. It's in his name.